Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from the Voice of America. I'm Jonathan Evans. And I'm Ashley Thompson. This program is aimed at English learners, so we speak a little slower and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. Today on the program, you will hear from Alice Bryant and Brian Lynn. Later, Steve Ember will present our American history series, The Making of a Nation. But first... Chicken with salmonella bacteria can make you sick. Other foods with E. coli bacteria or noroviruses can also make you sick. So why are health officials not warning people about eating food contaminated with the new coronavirus? The answer has to do with the way different organisms make people sick. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says viruses and germs attached to tissues to cause illnesses. Respiratory viruses, like COVID-19, usually attach to cells in places like people's lungs. But germs like norovirus and salmonella can survive the acid found in stomachs. They then multiply after attaching to cells inside the organ. The CDC and other experts note that they are still studying the new coronavirus. They say there is no evidence yet that COVID-19 sickens people through their stomachs. However, the virus has been found in the waste of infected people. The germs also spread differently. Viruses like the flu and COVID-19 spread mainly through person-to-person -person contact and air droplets from coughing or sneezing. Germs that make people sick through food cause illnesses like diarrhea. In some cases, germs found in human waste can travel from people's hands to whatever else they touch. Experts say that is why it is so important for food workers to stay home when they are sick with digestive illnesses. Otherwise, they could end up sickening lots of people. Experts say the biggest risk related to food and COVID-19 is contact with other people and workers in food stores. Stores are now limiting the number of people they let in. They are asking customers to practice social distancing and using tape to mark how far apart people should stand. The new coronavirus can survive on some surfaces. Experts say to keep your hands to yourself as much as possible and to not touch your face when shopping. The CDC suggests washing your hands after unpacking your groceries at home. It may also be harder for viruses to survive on food itself. 
Allison Stout is an expert in infectious diseases and public health at Cornell University. She told the Associated Press that the chances of anything surviving or coming out of food are small. For years, artists in cities throughout Africa have been making paintings to educate the public on social and health issues. During the Ebola crisis a few years ago, for example, artists around West Africa painted signs and murals to inform people on the deadly effects of the virus. Now, a group of artists in Dakar, Senegal, is making murals to show people how to fight the coronavirus outbreak. To limit the spread of the virus, the government has closed the country's airspace. It also ordered the closure of restaurants, schools, and Islamic religious centers. Senegal's president ordered travel restrictions and set a curfew of eight at night. But many people are not following calls to remain two meters apart or wash their hands more carefully. Some areas in Dakar are more crowded than others, so keeping distance is not always easy. And water supplies are sometimes cut unexpectedly, so frequent hand washing may not always be possible. In a country where only half the population can read, art is an effective way of sharing an important message. Alpha C is an art student and a member of Senegalese graffiti artist group RBS, short for Radical Bomb Shot. About 30 artists belong to the group. They have been creating murals around a car to demonstrate good hygiene practices and to tell people to stay home and respect the curfew. Sai said he was frightened for everyone because many people do not realize what is happening. He said people think the virus is only a problem in Europe and that it will not spread to Senegal. He also does not think the country's hospitals could take as many as 10,000 people. Because of Senegal's low literacy rate, C said, art is an effective way to share an important message. He said his group created the murals for everyone. The artists wanted people to understand the message, so they decided to focus more on the picture than the writing. The Graffiti Collective was formed in 2012 as part of efforts to raise social issues in a way that young people could relate to. The group's projects have focused on violence against women and paintings of African leaders, such as 
Nelson Mandela. The first of the murals for COVID-19, the disease resulting from the coronavirus, was done in partnership with Dakar's Sheikh Anta Diop University. Abdullah So is a director at the university. He ordered the mural painted on its grounds. He said the school is an ideal place for the mural because a lot of people walk by. So said, people do not have time to stop for long, so a painting like this helps the message have the greatest effect. I'm Alice Bryant. Facebook and Google have launched new tools to gather data on population movements in an effort to fight the spread of the new coronavirus. Facebook said in a statement it has created new disease prevention maps designed to help researchers identify areas where the virus COVID-19 might spread next. The information is based on data from users of the social media service. But Facebook says the user data will be processed without any personal information being shared. Facebook said its data is designed to provide information about general movements in and around cities, but not the activities of single individuals. One of the Facebook tools is called a co-location map. It aims to use data to predict the probability that people in one area will come in contact with people in another. Another map is meant to measure the effectiveness of stay-at-home orders put in place by governments in many parts of the world. Data is collected in areas to see if people are staying near their homes or are also visiting other parts of the area. Such information is meant to help officials decide whether preventive measures are headed in the right direction, Facebook said. A third tool creates maps that show Facebook friendships across states and countries. The data can map a percentage of social connectedness in specific areas. The company said this data is provided to medical professionals to help them predict the likelihood of disease spread. It can also help officials learn how social ties can help communities fight and recover from the crisis. The data is shared on a daily basis with local officials and nonprofit organizations across the world. The new maps are part of Facebook's Data for Good program 
which the company says attempts to use its huge supply of data to address important humanitarian issues. In addition to the maps, Facebook announced it was partnering with university researchers to seek health information from some users willing to share it. The program is part of a research project created by America's Carnegie Mellon University. Beginning this week, some U.S. Facebook users will see a link at the top of their news feed they can follow if they would like to take part in a survey about their personal health situation. Researchers hope to use the survey data to create heat maps of self-reported coronavirus symptoms. The information could also help officials predict where medical resources will be needed. Facebook promised it had taken steps to protect the privacy of those taking the survey. The company said it would not share the personal identities of its users with researchers from Carnegie Mellon. It added that the researchers will also not share individual survey answers with Facebook. If results are successful, Facebook says it will make similar surveys available to users in other parts of the world. Google also recently announced a similar data-gathering program, which creates community mobility reports for more than 100 nations. Google said the project does not involve use of personally identifiable information, such as an individual's location, contacts, or movement. Google has long collected data for its Maps app to show how movements of people affect how busy different businesses are throughout the day. Public health officials have requested such data now to help fight the worldwide coronavirus crisis. The reports, which are published online, provide information on the movements of people to several places in the community. These include trips to stores, recreation areas, parks, transportation centers, workplaces, and homes. The reports show percentage increases or decreases in visits to those places. Google said it hopes the information on the most and least visited places can help officials decide on future policies and resources aimed at fighting the virus. I'm Brian Lynn. Welcome to The Making of a Nation, American History in VOA Special English. I'm Steve Ember. Today we tell about the movement for civil rights for black Americans. The 
The day is August 28, 1963. More than 250,000 people are gathered in Washington. Black and white, young and old, they demand equal treatment for black Americans. The nation's most famous civil rights leader, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. is speaking. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Early in its history, black Africans were brought to America as slaves. They were bought and sold like animals. By the time of America's Civil War in the 1860s, many had been freed by their owners. Many, however, still worked as slaves on the plantations or large farms of the South. By the end of the war, slavery had been declared unconstitutional. But that was only the first step in the struggle for equality. Most people of color could not get good jobs. They could not get good housing. They had far less chance of a good education than white Americans. For about 100 years, blacks made slow gains. Widespread activism for civil rights did not really begin until after World War II. During the war, black Americans earned respect as members of the armed forces. When they came home, many demanded that their civil rights be respected too. An organization, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, led the way. In 1951, the organization sent its lawyers to help a man in the city of Topeka, Kansas. The man, Oliver Brown, and 12 others had brought legal action against the city. They wanted to end racial separation in their children's schools. That policy was known as segregation. At that time, two of every five public schools in America had all white students or all black students. The law said all public schools must be equal, but they were not. Schools for white children were almost always better than schools for black children. The situation was worst in southern states. The case against the city of Topeka, Brown versus the Board of Education, was finally settled by the nation's highest court. In 1954, the Supreme Court ruled that separate schools for black children were not equal to schools for white children. The next year, it said public schools must accept children of all races as quickly as possible. In September 1957, a black girl attempted to enter an all-white school in the city of Little Rock, Arkansas. 
An angry crowd shouted at her. State guards blocked her way. The guards had been sent by the state governor, Orville Faubus. After three weeks, a federal court ordered Governor Faubus to remove the guards. The girl, Elizabeth Eckford, and other black students were able to enter the school. After one day, however, riots forced the black students to leave. President Dwight Eisenhower ordered federal troops to Little Rock. They helped black students get into the white school safely. However, angry white citizens closed all the city's public schools. The schools stayed closed for two years. In 1962, a black student named James Meredith sought to attend the University of Mississippi. School officials refused. John F. Kennedy, the president at that time, sent federal law officers to help him. James Meredith became the first black person to graduate from the University of Mississippi. In addition to fighting for equal treatment in education, black Americans fought for equal treatment in housing and transportation. In many cities of the South, blacks were forced to sit in the back of buses. In 1955, a black woman named Rosa Parks got on a bus in the city of Montgomery, Alabama. She sat in the back. The bus became crowded. There were no more seats for white people. So the bus driver ordered Mrs. Parks to stand and give her seat to a white person. She refused. Her feet were tired after a long day at work. Rosa Parks was arrested. For a number of years, the Negro passengers on the city bus lines of Montgomery have been humiliated, intimidated, and faced threats on this bus line. The Reverend Martin Luther King organized the black citizens of Montgomery. They were the major users of the bus system. They decided to stop using the buses. At present, we are in the midst of a protest, the Negro citizens of Montgomery, representing some uh, 44% of the population. 90% at least of the regular Negro bus passengers are staying off the buses, and we plan to continue until something is done. The boycott lasted a little more than a year. It seriously affected the earnings of the bus company. In the end, racial separation on the buses in Montgomery was declared illegal. Rosa Parks' tired feet had helped win black Americans another victory in their struggle for equal rights. And the victory had been won without violence. The Reverend King was following the teachings of former Indian leader Mohandas Gandhi. Gandhi urged his followers to reach their political goals without violence. 
one of the major tools of nonviolence in the civil rights struggle in America was the sit-in. In a sit-in, protesters entered a store or public eating place. They quietly asked to be served. Sometimes they were arrested. Sometimes they remained until the business closed, but they were not served. Some went hours without food or water. Buses are coming. Another kind of protest was the Freedom Ride. This involved buses that traveled through states from the north to the south. On Freedom Rides, blacks and whites sat together to make it difficult for officials to enforce racial separation laws on the buses. Many Freedom Rides and much violence took place in the summer of 1964. Sometimes the Freedom Riders were arrested. Sometimes angry crowds of whites beat the Freedom Riders. Perhaps the most dangerous part of the civil rights movement was the campaign to win voting rights for black Americans. The 15th Amendment to the Constitution said a citizen could not be denied the right to vote because of race or color. Several southern states, however, passed laws to try to deny voting rights to blacks for other reasons. Martin Luther King and his supporters demanded new legislation to guarantee the right to vote. They held protests in the state of Alabama. In the city of Birmingham, the chief law officer ordered his men to fight the protesters with high-pressure water hoses and fierce dogs. People throughout the country watched the demonstration on television. The sight of people, including children, being beaten by policemen and bitten by dogs awakened many citizens to the civil rights struggle. Federal negotiators reached a compromise. The compromise was, in fact, a victory for the protesters. They promised to stop their demonstrations. In exchange, they would be permitted to vote. The freedom train is coming. Can't you hear that whistle blowing? It's time to get your tickets, y'all, and get on board. President Lyndon Johnson signed a major civil rights bill in 1964. Yet, violence continued in some places. Three civil rights workers were murdered in Mississippi. One was murdered in Alabama. Martin Luther King kept working toward the goal of equal rights. On April 4, 1968, he died working toward that goal. King was shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. He had gone there to support a strike by waste collection workers. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. CBS newsman Walter Cronkite. 
police who have been keeping a close watch over the Nobel Peace Prize winner because of Memphis' turbulent racial situation were on the scene almost immediately. They rushed the 39-year-old Negro leader to a hospital where he died of a bullet wound in the neck. A white man, James Earl Ray, was tried and found guilty of the crime. A wave of unrest followed the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. Blacks in more than 100 cities in America rioted. In some cities, areas affected by the riots were not rebuilt for many years. The movement for civil rights for black Americans continued, but it became increasingly violent. The struggle produced angry, bitter memories. Yet it also produced some of the greatest words spoken in American history. When we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And that's our program for today. Listen again tomorrow to learn English through stories from around the world. I'm Jonathan Evans. And I'm Ashley Thompson. This is VOA News.